Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John talks to Greg Gauze about Saudi Arabia's labor markets, reforms, and the future of the kingdom. Then, John, Will, and I talk about initiatives to change how young people relate to both each other and to the government in the Gulf. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Gregory Gauze is the head of the International Affairs Department and the John H. Lindsay Class of 44 Chair at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University. Greg, welcome to Babel. It's a pleasure to be with you, John. You and I have known each other for a very long time. And way too long. Way too long. And it feels to me like in some ways the Gulf knew that something was going to hit in terms of markets, in terms of the economy for a long time. Were they at all prepared for, for what's happened in, in the last few months? No. Look, people in the Gulf for, for years have been talking about how they have to restructure their economies and restructure their labor forces uh, in order to be less reliant on oil and to be less reliant on foreign labor. I mean, people uh, got very excited when Mohammed bin Salman came in in Saudi Arabia and, and introduced the Vision 2030 plan in 2016. When I looked at Vision 2030, I, I said, except for the proposal to privatize part of Aramco, almost everything that was in Vision 2030 had been in planning documents in Saudi Arabia for decades. Uh, I think the difference with Mohammed bin Salman was political will. Uh, he he seemed to have the political will to try to implement some of these changes. And there also seemed to but, be a spirit of sacrifice and a spirit of change and a level of energy in the kingdom that, that we haven't seen before. Right. And I think that a lot of that had to do with the fact that when MBS came in, oil prices were, they weren't as low as they are now, but they were, they were down, uh, they were down in the thirties, as I recall, maybe even down in the high twenties. But then, you know, oil prices crept back up. Uh, they got back up towards $70 a barrel. And it wasn't really until this, the double whammy of, of COVID kind of taking the bottom out of world demand at the same time that the, the Saudis and the Russians couldn't agree on a production cuts. And so the Saudis flooded the market. And you saw just the, the complete collapse of, of oil prices that we saw last month. So it I think that, that the only way in the Gulf that you're going to get serious economic change is with this kind of uh, sword of, of lower oil prices hanging over their heads. Uh, and so something might happen. But the problem is that low oil prices are the driver of, of change in these political economies. But at the same time, to, to pull off that change, you want some capital to be able to cushion cushion the transition. How do you maneuver the political challenge of changing that social contract when you've had generations that have gotten used to that social contract? If you look at the Saudi reaction in recent years, so MBS comes in and, and he enforces some hard choices on people, some austerity. He, he uh, lifts subsidies 
uh, not completely, but partially on things like water and electricity and Saudis are paying higher, higher bills. But, but then he tries to, to, you know, lessen the sting of that by, by instituting a policy of in effect, direct transfers to lower and lower middle income Saudis through uh, the, the citizens account, which is just direct transfers into your bank account. Uh, does that completely make up for the, for the, the higher prices? Not completely, but it takes the edge off. Uh, I, I think the problem is if oil prices are, are as low as they are now and will stay that low, it's harder and harder to do those things to take the edge off for, for maybe your lower and, and lower middle income people. The other problem is, you know, there's, there's all sorts of capital investments that were envisioned 2030 in an effort to try to, to create a new economy, to create an economy not as dependent on, on oil. If you don't have the capital to make those investments, uh, basically you're, 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 not, you're not creating the context for that changed economy. You've been paying attention to Saudi Arabia, not just during the global financial crisis of 2007, 2008, but you remember Saudi Arabia quite vividly from the last time we had a long trough in oil prices in the 1990s. Is this similar? Is it qualitatively different in some way from, from that long period of, of uh, low prices? Too early to tell. I mean, I think that the Saudi solution to all of this is, is going to be very similar to their solution from the late 80s through the 90s, which was you, split, you spend down your reserves, you borrow money, on the domestic market and on the international markets. And you, uh, you basically use uh, you know, what, what we might call kind of a Soviet-style uh, uh, rationing program. People just have to wait longer to get things. You have to wait longer to get your government job. Back in the 80s and 90s, it you know, was when the state controlled the telecommunications. You just had to wait longer to get your telephone, you know? Uh, and, and, that's a, and, and contractors had to wait longer to get paid. So I, I think that, that that's the most likely course the Saudis will take. I think the big problem with that as a, as a strategy going forward, as kind of a regime security strategy, is the Saudis were able to borrow a lot of money. Uh, by the late 90s, early 2000s, their debt-to-GDP ratio was well over 100%. I think, I think it got up as high as 120%. And right now it's about 30%, I think. 30% headed higher, obviously. People thought Saudi Arabia was still a good bet. You know, lenders thought Saudi Arabia was still a good bet. Does the change in kind of the global character of, of the use of hydrocarbons, concern about climate change, does that change the equation of the willingness of international lenders to finance the Saudis, to finance other Gulf states? That, to me, I think is uh, one of the big questions going forward. What options do they have other than the playbook that they followed in the, in the 80s and 90s? I don't think they have many, John. I mean, you can start taxing people more, you know, tax the rich and try to, try to uh, both cut spending and increase taxes. Uh, that, you know, the cutting spending will, will, will make your citizens in the middle and lower middle classes upset and your increasing taxes will make citizens at the upper, in the upper classes upset. Uh, 
that's not the typical Saudi strategy and certainly not the typical strategy throughout the Gulf states, right? Where, where it's a political economy built on, on uh, taking care of people and coddling people economically in exchange for political quiescence. Uh, so that would be a, a radical departure. I mean, Mohammed bin Salman is an extremely ambitious guy and a, and a tough guy. I'm not even sure he thinks he could pull off that kind of, of uh, imposition of austerity. And then throughout the rest of the Gulf states, I, I think that would be impossible to pull off. Uh, one of, one of, the, one of the, the elements of Mohammed bin Salman's rule has not just been the ambitious economic reform program, but also a social reform program. Where do you think that is headed? Not just in terms of, of uh, women and women's rights in public space, but also in terms of actually encouraging young people to get together, encouraging large groups of people to gather. Um, what happens to the social piece of Vision 2030 in your mind? Well, in the short term, it can't be implemented because uh, of the of the COVID shutdowns. And, and Saudi Arabia has been quite uh, emphatic in its close downs, uh, uh, prohibiting people from traveling from province to province, shutting down uh, the, the minor pilgrimage to Mecca. And, and I think you know, all indications are that the, that the Hajj, the, the, the pilgrimage, is going to be closed this year. Right. Uh, which will be an economic blow as well. Uh, so in the short term, uh, you know, the, 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 loose, the social loosening is, is on hold, but that's, that doesn't make Saudi Arabia unique. I mean, that's Saudi Arabia kind of following the world model. In fact, might be, might be following it in an even stricter way. Uh, but I think in the longer term, the, the social opening under MBS is also part of his economic I mean, if you can, if you can get more Saudis into the into the entertainment industry, into the hospitality industry, there is money within Saudi Arabia, and if they can if they can get kind of a consumer spending instead of outside the country for vacations and outside the country for entertainment inside the country, it, it'll have a multiplier effect. And so, you know, the more open media environment on entertainment, not on not on political media but on entertainment media the more open social environment is is not just an effort uh, as it's been frequently portrayed to, to cultivate the youth uh, but it's also an effort to to increase Saudi participation and grow those economic sectors as a way to put Saudis to work and and diversify away from oil We've been talking about the fact that for decades there's been an evolutionary move, sometimes glacially slow, toward an economy that is more diversified, toward uh, broader Saudi employment uh, in the private sector. It's all been as a very slow and evolutionary. Under what circumstances do you think there might be something that is not evolutionary, something that provokes a sharp break? between the past and the future. Um, and who, who, if anybody, could manage that? Well, this could be it. I mean, this is, this is a context that we've never seen before. Uh, we've seen lower oil prices, but we haven't seen a collapse of oil prices like we have this, uh, in, in this context. You know, we've seen 
social challenges, but we haven't seen the kind of global social challenge that the, that the COVID pandemic represents. And, and we've seen Saudi governments that have talked about taking on these challenges, but these have been Saudi governments that have been structured very much uh, along committee lines with lots of veto points. You've had a guy now who has consolidated power very much in his own hands uh, with, the, with the cooperation of his father, the king. So the prerequisites, I'd say, are there for uh, risky strategies. But does the crown prince want to take those risks? I mean, right? I, I mean, the, la the last leader that pops to my mind who, who confronted a, a number of, of, of sustained social and economic crises and consolidated power in his own hands and tried to change the system was probably Gorbachev and it didn't work. Uh, and, and, and so my guess, if I had to bet is as long as the Saudis can raise money on the debt markets, we're not going to see fundamental change. We'll, we'll, we'll see change, as you said, in an evolutionary way, maybe spurred on a bit by MBS, but not, not the kind of dramatic changes that would fundamentally alter the Saudi labor market or the Saudi uh, political economy. But, it, but, but this would be, this right now would be the opportunity, uh, perhaps an unprecedented opportunity to make those changes. But I don't know if even a risk taker like MBS has the, uh, the risk propensity to do that. Um, before I, I let you go, you know, one thing that, that we've talked about before is our mutual friend, Mike Herb, wrote a book about uh, monarchies in the Gulf and talked about dynastic monarchies that are sort of incoherent um, and have a lot of different constituencies, but also are resilient. And that right. his argument was that monarchies become more brittle when they have fewer of those veto points you were just talking about, when there's more of a unitary leader, when there's less shared power. <clears throat> Is it your sense that on balance, MBS's effort to consolidate power partly in order to get rid of all those uh, uh, blocking points and choke points creates a significant risk of brittleness because he doesn't have the resilience that he would have in a more incoherent environment? Or does it strengthen him because you need to move the system and the system under its old form could never move because everybody would say, no, I want to keep mine. Yeah, that's the $64,000 question. I mean, it does seem to me that, uh, that the worst of all possible worlds is the consolidation of power and no substantial change. Uh, and that, and, and that's something I think that MBS has to guard against. Look, he doesn't have a, he's trying to develop a constituency within the family among people his own age, but he has cut out, you know, the sons of the power brokers of the previous generation. Uh, and, and they're all against them. And in that sense, the system is more brittle in that I think that there are senior princes who given the opportunity right, in a crisis or a slip up or something, would be very happy to move against them. We don't see any evidence that they've been able to form 
a significant blocking coalition in the family right now. Uh, there's none of those public signs that that a real uh, serious challenge to him is emerging in the family. But the the raw material for that is certainly there, uh, because I think that that as as MBS cultivates the younger generation, you know, he's he he hasn't moved them into the positions of power where they might be able to block, you know, the older generation. So he's running a risk on that. I I, I think. You know, following from Mike Herb's, you know, very interesting analysis of of the, the structure of monarchies, I do think that that uh, it's a more dangerous time for the Saudi regime. Uh, I think the com- yeah, the combination of of this disquiet in the family with a fiscal crisis and a regional crisis, right, the, which hasn't gone away, the challenge of of Iran, the the collapse of authority in Syria and Yemen, the, the uncertain future of Iraq. This is a dangerous time for Saudi Arabia. I know you haven't given him advice, but if you were to give advice about how to navigate between the need to move swiftly and surely and the need to protect uh, a broad constituency to, to give him resilience in a time of change, how would you advise the Saudi leadership to to deal with that balance? It seems to me that that step one really does have to be, uh, you know, in this context, uh, we have to we have to address our our labor issues more seriously. Uh, Saudi Arabia is not a country like Qatar or the UAE, which will always have foreign workers just because you know the the the. the Local population is so small compared to the size of the economy. Uh, you know, there's a lot of underemployment in Saudi Arabia, and, and there's a dynamic private sector in Saudi Arabia that can employ Saudis. It's going to be it's going to be a hard transition, but it can be done. Uh, it seems to me that that would be the place to to move to give people some sense that things are changing. And make them more acceptant of the of the inevitable austerity that that's going to have to come with with uh, lower oil prices. Greg Goss, thank you very much for joining us. John, it was a great pleasure. Next up, John, Will, and I discuss how young people in the Gulf are changing how they relate to both each other and the government. So what are some of the initiatives being proposed in the Gulf and why are they being made? You know, in many ways, these initiatives started years ago. They got a lot of publicity when Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia put forward Vision 2030. But there has generally been a move toward freeing up people, giving women more freedom in public space, insisting that people get off the government payroll and explore private sector employment. And, you know, as, as Greg and I talked about, these things have been floating around for decades, but we have seen them drawing increasing momentum in the last, say, three to five years, certainly in the last couple of years. And now as governments try to figure out what to do moving forward in this COVID-19 crisis, we are seeing the governments both needing to change the way they've operated but also worrying about how much change do you really want to create right now? There's already a lot of change coming down the pike. 
And these uh, changes are also happening on top of longer term demographic shifts, which are really remaking what society looks like in, in various parts of the Gulf. We're seeing declining fertility rates. Uh, people are having smaller families. Life expectancy is increasing, in particular for women, but for men as well. Huge amounts of urbanization. And so life for a lot of people in the Gulf today is, is looking very different than it did for their parents' generation. It might even look quite different to how it looked for their older siblings. I think the changes are that quick. You know, and I still remember I had a conversation with a Saudi minister probably about 10 years ago. He said, look, my father was born in a reed hut and I live in a beautiful stone mansion. My children have grown up in a stone mansion. What will their future look like? And for people in the Gulf who have been able to count on rising living standards, they are staring quite starkly, not only at falling living standards, but perhaps rapidly falling living standards as potentially we're looking at a transition away from hydrocarbon-centered development faster than people expected or lower prices than people expected. And that can be a game changer for what people do for a living, who they can marry and how they live. Part of the ways governments have sustained popular support in the Middle East is because the governments have been remarkably strong providers. The social contract in the Middle East for three quarters of a century has been the government gives you a job and supports your housing, gives you free education and free healthcare and subsidizes fuel and on and on and on and people live comfortable lives. And for that, people trust the government, they obey the government. As governments look forward, they say, how long can we really sustain that? And arguably, if governments were to falter in the COVID-19 crisis, and they've been very careful to do as much as they can, but if they were to fail in COVID-19, if they were to fail to support the economy, then the support that they would have from the public would be endangered. And I think one of the challenges that governments have to think about in the broader sense is economically, if you have a population that has to be productive and isn't just going to take resources distributed by the government, but actually create value, that requires one kind of citizen, more entrepreneurial, more committed to changing the status quo and improving. And if you want a population that is going to obey the government and dutifully do what they're told, that's a different kind of population. And I think governments are trying to figure out what is the mix between those characteristics? How can you prompt the population to be more proactive, but not prompt the population to be more proactive saying, you know, the problem is the government's not doing what it should do. We need a new kind of government. And of course, that's why we've seen, I think, and in tandem with a lot of these moves in Saudi Arabia to open things up. That's why we've seen this really brutal crackdown as well on some of those very people who advocated for that change. And a lot of women's rights activists in particular remain in prison today because I, I, well, I think perhaps the government fears that they might push for too much and they might try and get ahead of themselves and, and, and challenge the authority of the government if the government is seen to make too many almost concessions. And the other danger is people don't push enough and they continue to look to the government and say, where's my handout? In December, 
we released a report called Ties That Bind. And for that report, you both traveled to Saudi Arabia and the UAE to research some of this very stuff. How were you guys seeing this on the ground and with the people that you were talking to for your research? One of the things that came up in our interviews, which I thought was interesting, was the notion of volunteering. So as governments are changing these relationships, it's no longer just about what people get from the state, but also about what people provide to their societies or their countries. And a few people talked to us about volunteering and how it was becoming more popular. But then they linked a decline in volunteerism with the introduction of new taxes. And there was this feeling that as things get more difficult economically, you have to turn inwards, you have to prioritize yourself and your own well-being. So I think that's just an interesting little nugget in, in terms of how people are thinking about how they can contribute to their broader societies and when they can. And, and as we see oil prices falling, we might see more of the inward looking part of this, just as governments are trying to get people to contribute more to their own societies. One other idea is, is this emerging idea of sacrifice, which governments, I think, especially the UAE and Saudi Arabia are trying to instill. And John's written a lot about this. And especially through the conflict in Yemen, these states have started to instill this idea that it's a celebrated thing to make a sacrifice for your country. Um, and there are all these martyrs, monuments and memorials and, th and things like that. And, and then just one other small thing, which I've, I've just remembered, which I, th I think was also interesting, was this notion of public space changing. And um, I interviewed a young Saudi official in, in the Ministry of Economy and Planning. And he said something that he had noticed is that when you walk around kind of wealthy areas of Saudi Arabia, there are these incredibly big houses and compounds, but just immediately outside the walls of some of these compounds, you'll see litter strewn around. And he attributed this to a sense that because people don't pay taxes, they don't care about what's beyond their immediate property. And they don't share this idea of a common public space that they should try and protect for a common good. And he said that this is changing and that there are now cultural festivals and that there are new spaces opening up in public space. In many ways, Saudi Arabia hasn't had public space. The notion of public space has always taken second place to the importance of the private, the family compound, what happens within one's own gates. I mean, malls in many ways were some of the first public space in Saudi Arabia and throughout the Gulf. We've seen malls being a whole different kind of place. It's not totally unprotected. It's not totally protected. It's what some people in our interviews described as an almost a third space. And with cell phones, you could send young relatives off. The boys could be with boys, but they weren't totally off the chain. You could always find them. They were still, you could call them if you needed them. And that's created a certain amount of freedom, which frankly was not at all common in Gulf societies. So that's a change. So as Will said, it's partly about technology. Uh, it's partly about changing government roles. It's changing economics, changing demographics. This is a region that has been undergoing tremendous change for the last 50 years. But it seems to me that a lot of people in the Gulf are wondering if this right now is an inflection point and what's coming next is going to be extraordinarily different from everything we saw from, say, 1973 onward. 
Thank you so much for joining me. Tune in next week for a meze on Russian language instruction in Syria. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.